Good afternoon, it's Steph. It's 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon, the 24th of March, 2006, and I hope you're doing beautifully. I uh, would like to continue with this idea of finding rapprochement with those who we are discussing our ideas with, and I'd like to go a little bit further along the lines of things that we need to establish that we have in common that will help us to help people see the truth. I don't like to call it uh, um, conversion because that smacks of irrationality. Uh, I think enlightenment is a nice way of putting it, which can be helpful, but basically it's just around helping people understand that 2 plus 2 is 4. Now, I guess we got to premise number 7, which is the idea that incrementalism is not working. This is another important thing to get people to understand. As somebody famously said, and Harry Brown appropriately quoted, incrementalism in theory is perpetuity in practice. And what that means is that, well, you know what, you guys are smart enough, you know exactly what it means. (laughs) I'm never ever going to underestimate the intelligence of libertarians, because you all are brilliant, brilliant, I tell you. So, uh, to get people to understand why we have solutions that seem to be kind of radical, it's important to understand that the problems that we're facing are not problems that can be solved by sort of more of the same. They're not problems that can be solved by tweaking. And they're certainly not problems that can be solved by uh, bureaucrats within the system. Now, another thing that uh, can get uh, people to help understand why we have the approach that we have, I guess this would be principle number eight, Uh, It's not a principle of libertarianism, but more of economics. Well, people respond to incentives. If you want to figure out, in general, what people are going to do, then you have to have a look at how they map incentives for themselves. What is their relationship to incentives? That's fairly important. Because if we don't say that human beings respond to incentives, then we are left with the problem of randomized motivation, which means that no social organization can ever work because it's kind of random. I mean, if you don't think that... uh, Certain illnesses respond to antibiotics, but instead respond to completely a random set of events that, you know, the full moon is in the sky, a vulture is overhead, and you're looking at your elbow, and magically you're cured, but doing it the next time won't cure it either, then there's no such thing as health, right? So if human behavior and motivation is entirely random, then there's no such thing as philosophy, certainly no such thing as economics, and of course, then there's no way of explaining why certain societies do well, i.e. free market, private property, and so on, and certain societies do really badly, i.e. everything else. So I think that we can safely say that people do respond to incentives. Now, I think we can also say that, this is, I guess, principle number nine, that the incentives that people are responding to within the government are not those which solve the problems that are the government's. So, for instance, I mean, the base incentive of government agencies is to uh, exacerbate the problems that they're trying to solve. So the more welfare is required, the more poverty there is, the more welfare is required, the more that the welfare agencies grow. This is quite the opposite, of course, from the free market for reasons which I'm sure you're fairly well aware of, if not perfectly well aware of. So the incentives within the system are uh, going to determine people's future behavior. And when incentives are so stacked, you can't just sort of nag people and say, well, you shouldn't do it because people respond to incentives. So there will be some people who will, o- who will always end up um, doing the right thing no matter what. There are other people who will always end up doing the wrong thing uh, no matter what. And the vast majority of people will do kind of what they are 
uh, allowed to do, and that's sort of important. Uh, they will do what they can get away with. So, right, and lots of people will never have an affair even if they know they can't get caught. Uh, lots of people will have affairs even if they do get caught, and a lot of people will just kind of do whatever, right? Do what they can get away with uh, based on the circumstances. Same thing with sort of getting away with, with taxes, right? Like if you can be sure that you're not going to get caught for not paying your taxes, right? A lot of people won't pay their taxes. Uh, the same thing is true if you're a waiter and you get tips and so on. What do you declare? Well, you declare the minimum that you can get away with without getting audited. So once we've sort of got that point across that incrementalism isn't really going to work very well for them at all for, for solving these kinds of problems, and that the incentives that are in the public sector are slanted in such a way that the, uh, there's not going to be any reform coming from within, then if I mean, people can argue all of that for sure, uh, and they can say, uh, no, incrementalism is working, right, in which case they need to sort of explain why government programs keep getting worse and worse, despite the fact that they keep trying to improve them, right? I mean, it's not like everybody who's in the public sector is an evil, parasitical, vampiric troll who just loves to get up in the morning and teach children as badly as possible and keep people dependent on welfare and so on. It's just that once you get a big pile of money that's been uh, achieved through illicit means, no good can come out of it just by the very nature of reality. You can't sort of get blood money and turn it to good use. So it's not that everybody who is a bureaucrat or who works in the government or who is a politician is evil by nature. That's not really uh, the issue. The issue is that, in general, the system as a whole doesn't have any real incentives to serve the customers, right? The real customers are not the taxpayers because the taxpayers' money is coerced. And so the real customers are their own sort of political ambitions and, you know, all the stuff that we know, which we can talk about if we want another time about bureaucracy. But basically, there's not a strong incentive. In fact, there's a strong non, non-incentive or negative incentive, or I guess you could use the official British word and say disincentive, <laughs> English word. So incrementalism uh, doesn't seem to work. And of course, if people can come up with good examples of how incrementalism does work in the absence of a free market, incrementalism in terms of improvements... But it seems to be the exact opposite, right? The more money you spend on a government program, the worse it does. And there's no government program, at least that I know of, that has ever systematically improved itself. So people can say that these systems are open to improvements within their own structures. But then all they have to do is they have to come up with the challenge of uh, two things, right? I guess, well, three things, I guess. The first is come up with examples. The second is explain how or why those examples uh, are not a part of the uh, free market, that's sort of important as well. And the last one is to explain sort of why only those uh, examples are the ones that are uh, available, right? So if, if government programs do have the ability to reform, reformulate themselves or improve themselves, even if they can find one and prove that it is not dependent on the free market for that improvement, they still have to explain why only that one is the one that is uh, improving itself. That's sort of important as well. So there's lots of barriers, and I don't really think that anyone's going to be able to get over them. There's lots of barriers that sort of explain why it doesn't really work to uh, have uh, bureaucracies in the state sector um, who are the recipients of coerced money uh, reform themselves. So if we sort of put all of these things together, I don't think I quite got to 10, but uh, I don't have a pen to write these down, so I'm just sort of go from memory. So I, uh, if we go through all of these sorts of things together, right? 
Uh, peaceful solutions are better than violent ones. Well, we're looking through DROs and through voluntarism and through voluntary taxation and through, you know, whatever it is you want to call it, and we can get into all of these sorts of debates another time, but in general, anarchists, minarchists, and so on, are looking for peaceful solutions rather than violent solutions. Um, we're looking for adaptive solutions because, of course, we're looking for free market things that are going to continually change according to new circumstances, right? And the one thing that happens in the free market is you get this kind of permanent improvement process, this permanent optimization of the use of resources to maximize customer satisfaction, to maximize profit, to maximize all of those good things. And so in the free market situation, you get something that's very adaptive. So, for instance, uh, if uh, there's some magic formula tomorrow that can be invented that if you recite it, it eliminates poverty, then it seems to me unlikely that the public sector is going to be expending strenuously night and day all of its resources to come up with such a thing. But an insurance company that insured people against poverty would be highly incentivized to come up with such a thing and will work night and day. And this is the basis of the entrepreneurial lifestyle. When you're an entrepreneur, and I can talk about this from direct experience, you end up working night and day for years with the hopes of obviously you're your own boss and all that. And you know, as far as being my own boss, I'm kind of a tyrant. Uh, but you're aiming for the big payout and the, the, the satisfaction in terms of emotional financial sense of doing a good job and selling your business or growing it to a significant amount and creating your own culture and not being under anybody else's thumb. Uh, so from a career standpoint, all of that stuff is great. But it's a lot of work and you only do it because of the incentives. I can absolutely guarantee you that because I've been in many different job situations in my life, both large companies and small companies, and wherever I have not had an incentive, then I just don't do the work. So that is, oh, I mean, I don't do as much work. I'm not uh, going to get up at, uh, uh, you know, six in the morning and go for a long day of meetings and then code all night if I'm just, you know, if I'm being paid a salary and, you know, I get the money when I just sort of meet my objectives. And when I don't have a strong career path for improvement or reward bonuses or whatever, I mean, it's just natural, right? I mean, people respond to incentives, and that's uh, nothing you can do about it. There's a basic fact of human life. So the free market is going to give an adaptive solution uh, rather than a fixed solution. Whereas you pass a law, you get a bureaucracy going, and then that bureaucracy lasts until the end of time, or more accurately, the collapse of state finances. And that is sort of not uh, the solution that we're looking for. We're looking for something a little bit more adaptive, we're looking for something just a little bit more uh, flexible and something that's going to continually adjust itself to um, new situations, new circumstances, new environments, new possibilities, and so on. It's constant optimization is what we want. Now, we've already gone over the people are generally benevolent uh, kind of argument. Uh, in my experience, and I'm sure that uh, there's about 10 billion reasons to disagree with me on this, and there's lots of people out there who will, but in my experience, eh, you know, people are pretty nice. And if they're not nice, it's probably because I'm not being very nice. I mean, that's sort of the general uh, thing that occurs. There are always people who are going to end up not being nice uh, no matter what, and there are always people who are going to be nice no matter what, but the majority of people will be uh, generally tend towards niceness unless they're extremely provocated, uh, provoked in one manner or another. And so if you, if you eliminate the benevolence of humanity argument, then it becomes harder to argue for... Um, uh, for anarchism or you know, objectivism, libertarianism. It doesn't become impossible, but it becomes a much more sophisticated argument. So if you're not dealing with somebody who's really bright uh, and hopefully not too well-educated, because if they're too well-educated, their brain's been turned into a kind of flashy porridge. But um, if, uh, if you get someone who's uh, reasonably bright and open to new ideas, you can make the arguments for anarchism based on the universal evil of human beings, you know, basically that if people are universally evil, the only thing that is going to keep peace at all is to have a uh, balance of power situation. And 
if so you you want to make sure there's no state because if people are evil they're going to be much worse if they have a, a significant difference in the balance of power and the state is automatically going to create that so you've got to have the only hope you have for peace in society is for everybody to be armed and at each other's throats to the point where it becomes not uh, productive to pull out a gun and of course the last thing you want is a dictatorship where people can harm whoever they want without any repercussions and that is you know i mean it's it's more tricky and it's more tricky because it requires a bit more conceptualization and also because you know it's just not true it's just not true the number of people that i've known who willingly use violence in their lives is like one maybe two maybe three in my whole life and those people do it usually within the context of a relationship that is intimate in nature, so it can't exactly be called coerced. I don't know anybody who just randomly gets up, walks out the street and starts punching people or mugging people. There are such people, but of course those people are generally generally responding to prior violence in their lives and so on. So the vast majority of people are nice. I mean, you know, stop your car at any time and ask people for directions, as I mentioned earlier, you'll see, eh, people are very nice. In fact, they seem very regretful if they can't help you. You go to your neighbors and ask for a cup of sugar. I mean, people aren't going to blow you away when you stand on the doorstep and say, can I get me some sugar? So people are generally benevolent, and that solves the problem, conceptually, of the welfare state, right? Because people will help each other and so on. And even if people say, well, they won't help each other enough and this and that, then you say, okay, well, sure, there's always going to be risk. There's, you know, you, you can't eliminate risk from new situations. The real question is, is the risk greater than continuing on the current path, right? I mean, there's a risk for chemotherapy, but is it better than dying of cancer? Well, probably, right? It's the same thing with risky medications. If you're going to die anyway, it seems to me that uh, taking something that has a promise of helping you, even if it's risky, is worth it. So uh, that's sort of the, uh, the, uh, the major point that I'm trying to make around that. Now, the poor, generally, uh, they want to improve their lot, right? If, if they're helped, if they have the options, they will generally uh, want to improve their lot. And if they don't, then the welfare state is completely immoral because you're just funding people with bad habits, right? So the poor want to improve their lot, and the best way to do that is to give them jobs, as I mentioned before. Now, this ties into the adaptive solution as well. One of the things that I've made the argument for, and uh, I'm, so I guess I can do this because I started a company that hired like 30 people, is that if I want to help the poor, if I want to help the poor, then I would like to be able to do that by starting a company rather than paying taxes, right? So I, got, I pay whatever, 60 grand a year or 70 grand a year in taxes, and I would much rather be able to take that money and plow it into starting a new business. And I think that that's a lot better in terms of helping the poor than just sort of being taxed and having the money hand them, handed to them regardless of the efforts that they're making to get out of poverty. And I really demand that right. Of course, I really demand that right to help the poor as I see fit, not as some bureaucrat sees fit, not as some political lobby sees fit, not as some politico sees fit. I demand the right to help the poor as I see fit. Now, of course, I would also argue that the time and energy that I'm investing in these podcasts is going to do a heck of a lot to help the poor over the long run. So I also demand the right to help the poor in non-monetary ways. You may decide to help the poor by handing out uh, food at a soup kitchen or donating turkeys at uh, Thanksgiving or starting your own company or trying to find a cure for method for a heroin addiction or whatever, right? Uh, by uh, t- uh, teaching uh, um, uh, parenting seminars at cut-rate prices in lower-class neighborhoods. I think well, upper-class neighborhoods, too. It's not like they're all great parents, either. There's lots of ways that you can help the poor that aren't around getting money taken from you at the point of a gun. 
And I think that we should have a flexible and open enough solution that people can help the poor in the best way that they can, right? So there's some people who the best thing that they can do is give money, right? So if you're some guy without any social skills who's inherited a lot of money, I'm guessing that the best you can do is to give the poor money. But if you are somebody like me who's got an entrepreneurial streak and likes to hire and develop people, then you get uh, kids out of school or even kids who aren't out of school, right? Kids with talent or kids with drive who otherwise, if you don't create a job for them, there will be no job. Right? I mean, it's not like if nobody creates jobs, there are no jobs, right? So every job that I don't create is one job less that's available for people, right? So uh, that's an absolute fact, right? There's no other, <laughs> you don't get sort of made some other way. And so if you're like me and you like to hire people and work with them and so on, that's how to get them out of poverty. Whereas most of the people that I hired, at least early on in the business, were kind of uh, uh, out of school and kind of broke and student loans and so on, definitely heading for poverty without a job, right? or back home to their parents, which, you know, kind of like poverty too. And so I demand the right to be able to help the poor in that manner. And then, of course, you'll get this mealy-mouthed Kantian objection. It's like, well, yeah, you're helping the poor, but you're profiting from them too. It's like, yes, exactly. That's why it's really helping the poor. You know, to give the give people, like, what would, it, what would that make any sense for me, right? To increase their pay to the point where I wasn't motivated to improve the business? How would that help them at all? It wouldn't. It would be a ludicrous idea. And, of course, because people respond to incentives, those people whose personal incentives, whether it's financial or emotional, who uh, those uh, incentives align with helping the poor the most, I mean, that's exactly what you want. You want people to have strong incentives, emotional, financial, or whatever, to help the poor, because that's how you know the poor are going to be helped, because, as we said a little later, um, the people respond to incentives. So it's a nonviolent situation, it's a flexible situation, and this idea that the only way to help the poor is to hold a gun to someone's head, take their money and hand it out like candy, is not really an optimal solution. So hiring is better than welfare, and monitoring is important for charity. Uh, any charity that is going to ask for your money is going to have to prove to you, I think, that if they're not you know, starting a business and have that natural incentive built in, they're going to have to prove to you that they're actually doing a good job, right? So they're going to have to give you some statistics about the people who uh, are off welfare, who were on it before, and, you know, there's lots of ways of measuring this kind of stuff. Uh, but basically, there is a... Uh, that, that kind of situation is, is very important. It's very important to uh, understand that in the absence of monitoring, in the absence of specific controls based on personal incentives, that uh, it's very hard to optimize uh, solutions, right? I mean very hard to optimize systems or processes or policies or whatever it is you're doing to solve a problem if you don't have any personal stake in the issue, right? I mean, if you're not going to lose your job unless you make it more efficient or you're not going to get a big bonus if you make it more efficient, then, eh, you know, it's sort of hard to expect people to do it. And so given also that incrementalism isn't going to work, then the current system cannot reform itself. Or the current system cannot reform itself. I mean, we'd all love to wake up one morning and figure out how to snap our fingers and make every turn every bureaucrat in the world into a free marketeer. That would be wonderful, you know, because then everybody in the world would be free and we wouldn't need to have lots of arguments like this. I mean, that would be wonderful. But it's never going to happen. It's like trying to snap your fingers and you know, everybody in the world's no longer going to get sick. I mean, never going to happen. So, at least until capitalism runs fully the healthcare system. <laughs> but... Um, it's not going to happen. So given all of these sorts of things together, right, you sort of package all of these things together, that the existence, because the existing system cannot reform itself, we need to look for alternatives to the existing system. 
That, to me, is quid pro quo. It's built up in the definition. If the current system is heading for disaster, and I think we can all pretty much understand that it is, and anybody who knows anything about the national debt and the rise of bureaucracy and the expansion of legislation and the problems with tort law and, I mean, you could go on the problems of foreign policy and so on, everybody recognizes that the existing system uh, cannot continue. Uh, It certainly can't continue for the next hundred years. And it would be very likely if it continued for another 50 years, and I'd still find it pretty unlikely it continues for another uh, 25. For me, eh, 5 to 10 to 15 is probably going to be much closer to it for reasons that I've gone into elsewhere. And so what does this all mean? Well, if the existing system can't continue, and of course the destruction, the self-destruction of the existing system is going to be pretty bad, right? It's a little bit nicer to put your landing gear down before you hit the tarmac, right? So it's a little bit nicer for people to understand what the issues are before the existing system self-destructs, because then they may choose an even worse system to replace it. It's like, oh, free, the government's gone bankrupt. You see, freedom failed, so let's have a dictatorship. I mean, that would be uh, the worst uh, way to get out of the current situation, right? So you want people to have an understanding which is what we're trying to do in this conversation, to have an understanding of why it's going to fail, what the problems are, and what the solution is going to be, which is going to be getting rid of the government. I know it's radical, but hey, you know, they got rid of the church and state uh, uh, being together, they got rid of slavery, uh, they got rid of the aristocracy in North America, they got rid of a lot of stuff that seemed unthinkable. I'm sure one more won't kill us as a species. Now, once you put all of this together, and I know I've been trying to put it together for the last couple of sentences, but I'm going to get there. I really have. Stop distracting me. (laughs) I'm talking to myself, not you. But um, if we put all this stuff together, that current system ain't going to last. Current system can't reform itself. We absolutely want to try and come up with a better system before the existing one implodes. Even if we can't change the implosion, at least it will mean that something better is going to come out of the post-implosion social scenario. And given that, you know, peaceful solutions are better than violent solutions, and uh, given that uh, adaptive solutions are better than fixed ones, and people are generally benevolent, and the poor and the sick want to improve their lot, and hiring is better than welfare, monitoring is important for charity, and we really want to give people the flexibility to help the poor in any way that they see fit, and there are ways, of course, in the free market that helping yourself is helping the poor, as in being an entrepreneur, you put all of this together, I mean, you know, everybody has the same goals, and we all want these things. Everybody has the same goals. It's just a matter of how to go about it. And, of course, people, if they understand this, they're going to understand that the existing system can't reform itself. We've got to look outside the existing system to find solutions for these things. So putting all that together, and hopefully you can be a little bit more concise than I've been, because it's not like someone's going to sit there for 45 minutes listening to you go on and on, unless it's a podcast, of course, which I still can't quite understand. But anyway, glad to have you along. So... It seems to me that if you get all of this stuff established with someone and you care and concern and, you know, you want to help racism and you want to help poverty and you want everyone to be happy and you want the children to be loved and you want, you know, the sun to rise uh, with a big smile on its face and you want children to dance and sing and everyone to be good at karaoke. So you want all of these things, which is what everybody wants. I certainly would like to be better at karaoke. But um, what that means in the uh, end result is that, you know, this anarchism thing, it's worth a look. It's really worth a look. And that's, you know, kind of important. It's not comfortable to look at it. I understand that. I mean, so this is how you communicate to other people. It's not comfortable to explain it to people. It's not comfortable to look at it. It feels kind of freaky. I understand that. Imagine uh, that you're the first guy to figure out the world is round. You're probably going to be falling over dizzy for the next couple of days. 
it's, you know, uh, it's understandable that it's kind of freaky to come up with a non-intuitive but perfectly rational solution to an existing situation that's going to get worse and worse, that can never reform itself, and the end of which is going to be pretty disastrous. So I can understand that that makes sense. You know, I, I sometimes think when I'm at the dentist that, you know, how they take that sort of sharp hook and they scrape all around your gums just to check the gum depth and all that. Ooh, it's lovely, isn't it? Um... <laughs> I always want to put on an audiobook, but I feel rude, like I can talk anyway, <laughs> uh, to be British. But, um, you know, they, they, they take that hook, they scrape it around your gums, and it's, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable. And they're like, ah, I have to measure your gum depth, and I'm going to do that by jumping up and down on this <laughs> sharp thing I've got poked into your gums. So I've got to think that the first person to come up with that was kind of like a sadist, and he may have been slightly disappointed that it actually helped people. <laughs> I don't know. But there's lots of things that are non-intuitive, you know, as simple as I like chocolate cake, uh, and not so much with the eggplant, but eggplant is good for you, and chocolate cake, except in small doses, isn't so much. So there's lots of things in life that are non-intuitive, that are counterintuitive, that, you know, don't make sense until you really think about them, and that's, you know, as to be perfectly expected, right? It doesn't look like everything's composed of little atoms, but, you know, Really, they kind of are. Uh, so there's lots of things that are non-intuitive. Um, it doesn't make sense that raising the minimum wage makes people poorer, but, uh, you know, it does. So there's lots of things that are non-intuitive. I understand that it's uncomfortable to look at new things. But once you've established that you're all on the same page, that you and the person you're arguing with are all perfectly on the same page, you all want the best for people, you all want for people to be happy, you all want... It's just a matter of methodology. And it's also just a matter of, and this is where things get to be a little bit more tricky... It's a matter of getting people to understand that repeating the same sort of incantations is not going to solve the problem, right? So the incantation that's very common in the government is, you know, more funding, more funding. If only we had more funding, everything would be hunky-dory. That's what we really want is more funding. And if we have more funding, oh boy, it's just, you know, we are $5 away from paradise, Yes, we've blown trillions upon trillions of your dollars already, and things have gotten worse. But five dollars more, it's just going to be wonderful. Again, uh, Harry Brown, uh, who uh, I'm thinking about with a certain amount of nostalgia, of course, at the moment. But uh, he had some great things, you know, to talk about. And he's sort of saying, you know, so some shifty brother-in-law. It's always a brother-in-law, right? Because it can't be blood relatives, although it sometimes is. So some shifty brother-in-law says, yeah, you know, I got a business idea. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. I'm going to sell hula hoops over the web. And it's going to be a fortune. And all I need from you, you can just lend me $5,000, baby. It'd be beautiful. So you lend the guy $5,000, and he blows it on Wine, Woman, and Song, and he comes back and he says, you know, i got to build a website for this thing now. Just give me another five grand. It'd be beautiful. You, know, you keep going around. I'm sure you get the idea, right? And Harry Brown didn't do quite as whiskey-voiced a guy as I did, but hey, you know, he wasn't quite as uh, exhibitionistic of his early acting training. <laughs> but um, so the guy keeps coming back for more and more money. At, so, at, at what point do you sort of say, you know, I don't think you're another five grand away from being a successful entrepreneur. I think you're just kind of like a chiseling, lying bum. Or however you want to put it, at some point, you're kind of beholden to, based on just having some kind of learning curve and intelligence as a human being, it's kind of beholden upon you to close your checkbook and to tell him that you'll think about it, <laughs> which is the British approach. So this is the same thing true with uh, helping people to understand that the same formulas aren't going to produce any different results. So, you know, if they feel that prayer is really good for dealing with leukemia, but everybody who tries it dies, it's fairly important, I think, to say, if you're interested in health and getting people to be better off, it's fairly important to say, I don't think prayer is really going to help you here. Like, i got to tell you, I know you feel strongly like it's a solution, but it's never worked in the past. In fact, prayer 
just makes people worse, right? I mean, the, the problem with that metaphor, which has just dawned on me, is that uh, not uh, if, if government programs make everything worse, right? Prayer doesn't have any effect on leukemia. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it worse. But uh, government programs actively make everybody worse. So it's kind of like you're saying, people are saying, you know, you know what really helps with emphysema is uh, smoking. <laughs> smoking and lots of it. Uh, you know, stogies, chewing tobacco, and, uh, uh, you know, camels. That's the way to really help emphysema, actually making it worse, right? So repeating the same old formulas, which haven't worked, say, for the past, oh, gosh, what would it be, mm, 10,000 years or so? Repeating those formulas one more time, in the face of overwhelming evidence and perfect consistency in terms of the disasters of government programs and the disasters of violence in general, you know, repeating those formulas again, I'm sorry i got to tell you, it's not good enough. It's not good enough anymore as a political argument to say, we need more funding, we need another law, we need a new bureaucracy, we need to do this, we need to do that. Oh, has uh, meddlesome and violent foreign uh, relations uh, caused uh, problems with us around the world? Let's go and invade a country. Right? You, you really have to do a little bit better than that now because the facts are in, right? As we know from the 20th century, right? Socialism doesn't work. The lack of a price system doesn't work. Lack of property rights doesn't work. And it doesn't work in a way that gets hundreds of millions of people killed. So it's not exactly neutral. We know that doesn't work. We know from the current world that, you know, religion uh, makes societies worse. The more power that religion gets, the more power, political power in particular, that religion gets, uh, the worse things get in society. So, you know, those facts are in. Uh, we know the national debt. We know all about the messes in public schools. We know the fact that the public schools have been, had increasing funding for the last 40 years. We know that public sector unions, blah, blah, blah. We know this, eminent domain and, you know, seizure of, of drugs. We know the drug war doesn't work. Everybody knows these things. And so it really isn't enough to continue to mouth off the same load of crap that got us into this mess to begin with. And that's, you know, you don't have to put it that harshly with people, but, you know, it's important for me, at least, to say, um, no, that, like, why would that, like, it's not going to be any different. It's not even, like, rhetorical. It's not even, well, how would increasing funding help the schools get better? It's like, no, I'm sorry, that's really been tried for 40 years. That's not a solution. Right? And the more it's tried, the worse it gets. So more funding isn't even neutral. It isn't even negative just in terms of taxpayers. More funding for education, for instance. It's negative in terms of the children. And, you know, you really don't want to be harming the minds of children. So I've got to tell you that your solution of more funding doesn't cut it. Not going to work. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, please try again. Uh, but <laughs> you're coming up snake eyes as far as uh, any kind of valuable contributions to the debate. So you've got to sort of beat back the fantasies, however nicely you can do it, or, you know, if it's not nice, that's your choice, but I would recommend that you try and be as nice and humorous about it as possible. Like, uh, no, it's not going to work. Sorry, that answer, for, I mean, you know, you can even say, right, like the Columbo, like the kid who doesn't understand, you can say, well, I don't know what will work exactly, but I'll tell you what won't work, right? I don't know how to cure a migraine, but I'm pretty sure it involves not beating your head against the wall anymore. And so that's something that's sort of important, because if people think that, the same old solutions are going to work again, then they're not going to look for new solutions. That's, that's an absolute given. That's an absolute given. And this is why, you know, well, I'm as nicely as possible, but pretty firmly, like when, when Christians say, all the good stuff that Jesus talks about is innate to his nature, but all the evil stuff he talks about is taken out of context, it's like, uh, sorry, it's not. You know, I, I, I don't mean to be shocking you, but when he says, when Jesus says, uh, kill all the, um, the unbelievers, um, got to tell you, I find that a little offensive, you know, as a, a card-carrying unbeliever, um, as a blasphemer slash heretic, you can check my business card, I got to tell you that I do find that a little offensive. 
And, you know, if <laughs> if a Nazi says to a Jew, okay, yeah, well, we do talk about killing all the Jews, but, you know, you don't want to take that out of context. It's like, out of context of what? <laughs> out of context of what? Out of tickling us before you kill us? Come on. I mean, and, the, the, you know, so if we let people get away with this kind of stuff, you know, we've really no way, I mean, they're not going to figure it out, right? I and mean, if we happen to have gotten this special light shone on our forehead, and on my forehead, as you can imagine, that's fairly bright, uh, if you, if we're the ones who happen to understand this, and other people, of course, don't and have no incentive to see it because it's kind of uncomfortable when, as a Christian, you get associated with near-universal genocide, well, they're not going to see it. What incentive would they have to conceivably uh, see it? So we have to sort of point it out, and the way that we point it out is sort of gently, insistently, and kindly saying, yes, I understand that there are some nice Christians, and I do understand that Jesus said some things that I would probably agree with. But i got to tell you, I still can't get away from the whole genocide thing, genocide of non-Christians thing. I really can't get over the whole, I think that we should uh, have slaves. Uh, and I've, you know, I've gone through this kind of stuff before. But that's the past stuff I can't get past, and I really don't feel comfortable mixing and matching. right? Like, I may be an animal lover and a vegetarian, and so was Hitler, but that doesn't mean that uh, I'm going to sort of say that I'm a Nazi, right? I'm actually just going to say that I'm a vegetarian and an animal lover. I'm not going to say I'm a Nazi because I have those two things in common with Hitler. So there's some stuff that Christ said that may be relatively sane, uh, but uh, that's not. I'm not going to subscribe to the whole thing, right? I'm not going to eat an entire cake of uh, arsenic just because there's two peanuts inside and call myself healthy. So the first, you, you mean, after, you've, after you've established that the existing system can't continue and we need a, a sort of solution that's based on pacifism, Right, because the solution can't include ingredients from the poison. Right, your, your cure. I mean, this isn't like snake venom time. Right, the, the cure can't involve the poison. So, if you have a system that's basically based on violence and coercion and is sliding into ever greater violence and coercion, all these sorts of problems, this, that, and the other, the solution isn't going to involve coercion. Right, <laughs> because that's sort of the root of the problem to begin with. And so, that's I think fairly important to get across as well. If something can't be reformed within and is driving us all off a cliff, economically and, and uh, politically, then the solution to all of that uh, problem, which is based on violence, is not uh, violence, right? Like the solution to slavery, uh, as Lincoln uh, had, is not to raise a slave army and go and fight it, right? <laughs> it doesn't really work, right? The solution to uh, government-sponsored discrimination, uh, a la sort of the, uh, the Jim Crow laws and so on in the uh, 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, the solution to state-sponsored uh, bigotry is not, um, you know, to me, uh, not state-sponsored bigotry. So this is one of the reasons why affirmative action is stone evil, uh, as slavery and discrimination was stone evil, right? It's always kind of surprising to me, and we can talk about this another time, it's always kind of surprising to me that minorities that are enormously harmed and destroyed by the state look to the state for a solution. To me, that's just kind of funny, you know? <laughs> This guy beats the crap out of me every day, so maybe he can be my surgeon. <laughs> yeah, because that sadism is going to get less when you're unconscious and he's got a knife. Right, that makes sense. So that's another thing to get across to people, that the solution is not going to involve uh, the, the exactly the same traits and, and moral rules that have got us into all these problems to begin with. So this is sort of my template as it stands for getting these ideas across to people. I think it's so important to try and get uh, the, the alignment, the alignment that everybody wants 
the world to be a better, happier, peaceful, more productive place. Everybody wants the poor to have all the opportunities they want. Everybody wants peaceful solutions that are adaptive and flexible and positive and long-lasting and appeal to people's innate desire to improve their situations and be happy. So to me, that's all wonderful. And we are all on the same page as far as that goes. All moralists want the same thing. I mean, all true moralists, right? You've got false moralists who are just apologists for state power, like this John Rawls fellow, and uh, I think to some degree Noam Chomsky, and just about every other intellectual that I've ever read who's not specifically in the, um, at least the libertarian camp, to some degree the objectivist, and to a larger degree the minimalist or anarchist or anarcho-capitalist for sure. These people are all apologists for state violence to one form or another. That's kind of corrupt. The issue is that they are hooking into other people's desire to have these problems solved, which all decent people want solved. The majority of people are decent. And they're selling them a bloody bill of goods in order to get them to uh, believe that this is going to work out for the best, right? That this is going to solve all the problems that everyone wants solved around race and poverty and illness and abuse and uh, lack of education. All the, all the problems that we'd all love to see solved... Uh, people sell this false bill of goods, like violence is going to achieve those things, right? So people say, okay, well, hide the violence, pretend it's not violence, and so on. But uh, this is going to solve the issues, right? And it's like the war, the perpetual war to end war, right? And the, the next war is always going to make the world peaceful, but, you know, there's always a war after that. It'll make the world safe for democracy, get rid of the Nazis, get rid of the communists. Now, <laughs> Al-Qaeda, I mean, yeah, absolutely, sure, sure, we... Uh, uh, we don't like the um, basic idea of people coming and killing our citizens. So in order to solve that problem, we're going to go and kill other people's citizens. Sure, absolutely. I mean, what more logical a solution could you, uh, <laughs> could you conceivably have? So if you can get people to understand that the old answers, you know, more funding, more laws, another government department, or, or even if they say less funding, right? I mean, less funding is another. This is the, the problem of the Republicans. And I don't mean the Republicans in power who are just fascists. I mean, the Republicans, like, who are old school, right, who are like, a uh, little bit of government, you know, uh, law, courts, police system, maybe, maybe some privatization there, uh, police, a little bit of military, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the old-style Republicans who were sort of statist variants on the classical liberals, uh, those people are like, less government is the solution. And the problem is that, given that we have already established that the government cannot reform itself, less government is not going to work. And even, of course, if we could get back to very much less government, like even to the constitutionally limited um, uh, prescription for the size or the de degree of power the federal government is supposed to have, which would be tiny government relative to now, like 0.5% of the government that we have now, well, don't you know, uh, it's all going to start all over again, and with you know, within 80 years, two to three generations, it'll all be right back to where it is now, so... You kind of want to just, you know, let's not uh, put this thing into remission. Let's put it out of its misery, right, the state. So even if people are those kinds of like, it would be great if we had a constitutionally limited government and it would be great if we could get back to what the founding fathers intended and so on. Well, even if that were possible, which it, it isn't, right, you can't sort of say less violence because you've still already conceded that violence works, right? You just want to tweak it, which you can't do, right? That's like Mickey Mouse and the, the brooms in the Sorcerer's Apprentice, right? You're just like, hey, I'll just use a little violence, and immediately it spirals completely out of control and consumes you and eventually uh, the whole society in a sort of flaming wrath. So these people aren't going to help, right? You don't say less slavery, right? You don't say less slavery. Slavery is either right or it's wrong, right? Slavery is right or it's wrong. You don't say less slavery. Uh, if something is ethical, you say less of it. Uh, and even if you do say less of it, like sometimes you should lie to save people's feelings or whatever, you don't say that's moral. It's definitely a compromise. 
But for sure, you don't want to get into the situation where you are agreeing with someone that less violence, right? That's not progress, right? If you get into an argument with someone when they say, we want less government, then, you know, my humble opinion is that you're doing a complete disservice to the freedom movement, the real freedom movement, which is like completely anti-violence, by saying, yeah, okay, violence is good, but we have too much of it. I mean, that's not... Uh, that's not the way it works, right? <laughs> that's not the way that, that uh, reality or philosophy or truth or logic or morality works. I mean, this is not how things are. So uh, if you allow any kind of justification for the initiation of the use of force, then you've lost the argument. Don't bother. Don't ask. Don't try. Don't combat. Don't Because you're going to end up just basically undermining the, the whole moral clarity and reality of the issue, which is that violence is always wrong. Uh, the initiation of violence is always evil, and so therefore the state can't exist, and don't uh, compromise with that, because then, you know, as I've mentioned before, why bother? Like, why bother getting into fights with people if you're just talking about the length of the knife that you should be uh, stabbing people with? I mean, that's really not an honorable pursuit, in my opinion. Like, some guy saying, we should shoot him in the head, and you're saying, no, we should just shoot him's toe off. You know, that's, that to me is not swinging things round to the good side of the fence. That's not, to me, making a stand for goodness and freedom and uh, moral uh, improvements in, in the species. That's just, yeah, okay, we shouldn't aim at the heart. We should aim at some uh, extremity that they can live uh, with uh, if, if they get blown away. Or if it gets blown away, they can still live. That's not, <laughs> to me, that's not, you know, the ship's still going to sink. It's just going to sink a little slower. So we don't actually want a ship that doesn't sink. I mean, yeah. So... Don't get involved in that kind of stuff at all. I know it's very tempting. Oh, I know, I know, I feel it too. It's like, okay, well, I'll make this little concession, and at least I'll be closer to the anarchist position, or at least I'll be closer to a moral position. No, they won't be. They absolutely won't be any closer to a moral position if you compromise on the initiation of force issue. No way, shape, or form. All you've done is justified violence. Now you're just talking about degrees. Yes, we should kill some Jews, but, you know, six million is just excessive. I mean, that is not a moral argument. That's like, and you're not going to win that anyway, right? As soon as you say, yes, we should kill some Jews, then, you know, the whole apparatus is going to get away with you, and you'll be lucky if it's only six million. And then you'll have to look yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, I kind of helped build that machine. I kind of helped put that human sausage maker in place, and I kind of got it some, I gave it a lube job, and I filled it up with fuel, and then I said, well, don't run this thing too hard, and then, lo and behold, I got led away, put in a dungeon, and they ran it as hard as they could and killed everybody. So, I'm sorry to put it this baldly, uh, but, uh, I don't have much choice, <laughs> but uh, the fact of the matter is, you simply can't compromise on this issue. I mean, you can, but, you know, what's the point, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and tell me that you'd be proud of that, right? Shoot less, kill less, use less violence, stab less deeply. If you feel that that's how you want to spend your time in the world, as far as contributing to the goodness of the world, then you and I, my friend, have a slightly different, <laughs> a slightly different definition of what constitutes moral behavior and moral arguments. And if I'm wrong, by all means, let me know, because I would love to have those kind of compromising arguments, except that my Socratic demon won't let me. No, <laughs> except that I just can't see my way clear to. Uh, saying to people, yes, I think that we should punch, but it's only should be to loosen the tooth, not to break the jaw. I just can't see how that's a moral argument. Please, help me out of my prison if I'm in error, and let me know. So, this is the general stuff that I wanted to talk about when it comes to uh, arguments. You know, you've, you've got to lay this stuff, like you're building a house, right? you get your plans, you got your foundations, you got your brick by brick, you got everything that you need to do. You sort of conceptualize it all ahead of time, all that kind of good stuff. And that's pretty important to do. When you take on a moral argument, 
it's a it's a pretty significant thing. You know, it is a pretty powerful thing to do. And you kind of I don't want to sort of overstress you or anything, but you're kind of only really going to get one shot. You're kind of only really going to get one shot. And as I sort of mentioned on the board, somebody was saying that he sent a letter to his brother and sister-in-law because they were very keen on having something like, oh, you should bring the flag back into public schools or whatever. And so he started, you know, down this road of talking to them about the government is forced and so on. And I said, you know, I, I really applaud your uh, courage, but I kind of want to warn you about something. I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. That, you know, you, you really should be aware of the road you're going down. You've got to know where you're going, so you have a choice, right? You're going to go down this road, right? You're going to start, whatever. It's going to, I'll just use taxation as an example, but you're going to use, this is what's going to happen. So you're going to say that uh, taxation, uh, you think it's immoral, and you want out. And they're going to say, no way, you don't get to, you know, you can leave the country, but you can't stop paying taxation. And you're going to say, well, you do realize that you're kind of advocating that I get shot. Now, I have no problem if you want to pay taxes, if you feel it's the right thing to do. I don't. I think it's the wrong thing to do. I don't want to fund foreign wars. I don't want to fund a corrupt welfare scheme. Uh, I don't want to fund a corrupt foreign policy. I don't want to fund foreign aid that goes into the pockets of uh, dictators. Uh, now, if they say, well, you have to pay it, you can work to change the system, or you leave the country, whatever, right? And you say, okay, well, you uh, are telling me that I have to get shot if I don't agree with you. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to get shot. If you want to give money to these people, by all means, do so. So recognize, only one of us is holding a gun here. You're saying to me that I'm going to get shot if I don't agree with you, and, you know, that's sort of important to me, you know, as a free-thinking and person who likes to have people around him, say, who don't advocate his murder... That's kind of important. And then you're going to sort of be staring across the table at someone who's sort of saying, yes, I would support that you get murdered. You know, you should be killed, right? That's, that's sort of what you're, I mean, this is the reality. I mean, I don't make these things up. This is just the way things are in, in the world, in, in fact, in, in reality. Now, if you go down that road, then you end up with that situation where somebody's sitting across from the table at you, looking at you directly in the eye and say, yes, you should be shot. Well, I got to tell you, you may be able to excuse this in your own mind in some level, in some mad way, but in your heart of hearts, your relationship is over. I mean, this man's become a stone enemy. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. There's something he can do about it, but he obviously hasn't. So this person has become a stone enemy. I mean, how do you feel about somebody who says, I want to shoot you. I want you to be shot. If you don't agree with me, I think that you should be gunned down. You know, or, you know, <laughs> imprisoned for the rest of your life. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't really want people like that in my life. I don't want people who've got murder towards me in their eyes in my life. I mean, how could you conceivably want that? How could you conceivably call yourself a moral human being and associate with those who want you killed? Right? So, uh, you know, given that you've only got one chance with these people, I think it's pretty important to know what you're doing when you start to get into this. Right, So get a whiteboard, say to the person, I'm going to bore the pants off you for two hours straight, but it's really important to me. And I think it could really do a lot to enhance our relationship. Don't say sort of save, it may sound like a threat. But, you know, you say to someone, get, don't do it over dinner with everyone talking, and don't do it when you've got some place to go, and don't do it when they're watching TV, and don't do it when they've got to go pick up their kids. Take them to lunch and say, I need you for a couple of hours, and bring your salt and pepper shakers to explain stuff and build, you know, maybe list down the points you want to make. Make a real chance. Make a real effort at trying to get people to understand your opinion. It's very important. Because if you blow it, 
I mean, yeah, okay, you've harmed the freedom movement, blah, 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 but you're not a slave to the freedom movement. You don't even have to do this at all. But if you're not going to do it, then don't do it, right? I'm not saying you have to. You're not a slave to freedom. It would be contradiction. You don't have to do any of this. But if you're going to do it, if you're going to start doing it, this is, you're going to end up with the I want you shot stuff. I mean, or you're going to give up and hate yourself, right? You're gonna, you're, either way, the relationship's toast, right? So you want to save your relationship with the people who you want to save your relationship with, and you want to do that as, as intelligently as possible. And the way to do that, of course, is to sit down and say, I need time from you. I need you to explain where I'm coming from. So you don't think I'm a nut. So you don't think I'm a loony. So it makes sense to you so that you understand the argument, so that you understand that we are entirely in agreement with 99% of this stuff and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, say, do you, are you willing to have that conversation? And if they're not, you know, then whatever. You can do whatever you like. It's going to be tough. You maybe have to avoid them for a while. Who knows? You're going to be uncomfortable. But, you know make sure you prepare for that conversation. Not because you want to convert people. I mean, that's all nice if you can do it. If you want to illuminate and show them the truth, fantastic. But don't end up in a situation where you've got nobody left in your life. Right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not necessarily the way to go. Uh, so that would be sort of my suggestion. Um, there's lots of ways to make the argument uh, fun and enjoyable and positive and productive and save your relationships, win people over to the truth, uh, be a happy guy, and do an incredible service to humanity at the same time. But it's not like it's like you're going into the ring with Mike Tyson there. You've got to prepare. You've got to work up to it a little bit. So I hope that these suggestions are helpful in that way. Thank you so much for listening, as always.